Mr. Garcetti, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you. Very welcome, Dimitri. Thanks for the opportunity. Now, I'd like to begin with your background a bit. Uh, you were born into an immigrant family. Your dad was born in Mexico. How has that informed your life choices, your career in the law, your pursuit uh, of public service? That's a very broad, interesting question. No yeah. one has ever put a question like that to me. For you need, I need to know a little bit more history, perhaps. Uh, my mother was also from Mexican family. She was one of 19 children, same mother and father. My dad's uh, father had immigrated from Italy to Mexico and then was hanged during the Mexican Revolution. I don't know which side he was on, but he was on the wrong side, obviously, on that day. And that's when my dad came across the border. Never graduated from any school, was always in trouble, and uh, hung out with some, um, well, lower-level criminals in that he was a gambler, and he made a lot of money. Uh, but he eventually became a barber. Uh, my mother was a meat packer. I was born on a house uh, near the Coliseum in Los Angeles, and I was always proud to be Mexican-American. But it wasn't until maybe about a year ago that I realized that I always passed as a white person because my skin is not as dark as your stereotypical Mexican. Garcetti is not a Spanish or Mexican surname. It's an Italian name. Uh, but yet, I went through a lot of what people of color go through. I lived in a lower-income area. I would say really lower, lowest middle income. Let me put it that way. Never, we always had food on the table. Um, you know, we had clothes, et cetera, all of that, and doing it. But I saw what was going on, and I wanted to be a public defender because I didn't see what I liked during the 19... Uh, 68, um, yeah, 1968 uh, political convention in Chicago. I saw what was happening in my neighborhoods, the excesses of uh, police, et cetera. But I wound up joining the DA's office because I was convinced by others that the seat of power in the criminal justice system is really in the district attorney's office. And I concluded, I'd rather have that authority, that responsibility, and if you want to call it power, that power because we are the ones who decide, is the case going to be filed? What are the charges that are going to be filed? What is the plea deal going to be? Because as you know, 96, 97% of all cases wind up in pleas of some kind. What is the appropriate sentence, et cetera, going through all that. But when I became the district attorney, and this is a long-winded answer to your question, I really wanted to increase the number of minorities we had in our office. We had a staff of about a thousand lawyers when I started as the district attorney. And I wanted to bring in many more Latinos, black people, Asian people, um, queer, LGBT type people coming openly, openly gay people and doing it because that was what Los Angeles was. And so that all affected me, my background there in wanting that. You know, being a prosecutor on the state level is such an interesting endeavor because you are primarily a lawyer, obviously, right? And then every so often you have to become a politician. How did you navigate those muddy waters? Good question again. 
I was one of those student body president types uh, and went through that at USC at my, at my undergraduate work. But then I was turned off during the 1960 presidential campaign. Bobby Kennedy was killed. Uh, Martin Luther King was killed that same year. And the man I was working for, Clean Gene, maybe wasn't as clean as I thought he was going to be. And I said, ah, I'm going to forget that. I just want to be a trial lawyer. So as you go through it, you have various challenges. And one challenge I had was a huge challenge. I was on a fast track in terms of promotion in the civil service office. And I was made the person in charge of a division that handled the investigation and prosecution of public officials, including police officers. Wound up that the police hated me. And I mean that, hated me, because they thought that I was out to get them. And I told them time and again, they said, you'll be prosecuted if you've committed a crime. But most police shootings are not crimes, even though they look bad. Uh, the law doesn't permit us uh, to simply prosecute a police officer or someone else just because it looks bad. We have to have proof that a crime was committed. And we usually can't prove that. But that went on, and it was tough. I mean, it was a tough time. People in my own office didn't care for me because I was prosecuting the people that they worked with every day. How, how you and that's going to affect us in front of a jury? Well, we knew the police officers lied. We knew the police officers exaggerated, and the, the vast majority of police officers did not. But there were enough who were police officers who were doing that, and they were never held accountable. So it was my job to try and hold them more accountable than they were. How did you deal with the media? In a place like LA, one of the better known DA's offices in the country, how hard was it to engage the public sector in that way? Well, I had more press than I wanted, <laughs> put it that way. Uh, because we had, as soon as I became the district attorney, I had high profile cases. I started by inheriting the Menendez brothers murder case that was nationwide news. Uh, I then handled the first Michael Jackson case early on. And then we had other cases, you know, yes, the Reginald Denny case, the, the man who was beaten by a black man with a brick just pounded his head in during the riots uh, before I was elected, but I, it was my office that was handling the trial there. Then we had the O.J. Simpson case. And, you know, it went on like that. We had Bill Cosby's son who was murdered. We had that case. We had the second Michael Jackson case. And then we had the Ramparts LAPD investigation. That got the public's attention. Every one of those things got the public's attention. When I got the verdict in the uh, O.J. Simpson case, it came as a surprise because we expected a hung jury. We knew we weren't going to get a conviction based on the jury that was selected, but we thought we'd get it on the second one. When they came back not guilty, I was angry. I was upset. This was not justice. But I'll share you with you just a quick, quick story with that. As I'm the CEO of this large organization, I'm trying to get ready. How do I handle the press if a guilty verdict comes in? I knew what to say then. If we got a, a hung jury, I knew what to say. But if we got a not guilty, I truly did not know what to say. Because it would be a verdict that would shake 
the foundation of this country to some extent certainly really impair race relations. And so I went to my staff, what do I say? Come up with something. I need something. I can't do it myself. They couldn't come up with anything. I went to Black elected officials, groups of them, and sometimes individually, and said, what do I say? What do you say? I said, oh, Gil, don't worry about it. He's going to be found guilty. He did it. You won't have to. They wouldn't give me any help. Finally, the last thing I did was call a group of Black ministers together, and I went through the whole scenario. What do I say? What do you say? Oh, don't worry, Gil. He's going to be found guilty. Don't have to worry about it. No help. Then I heard that Jimmy Carter was coming into town. Habitat for Humanity. So I called him, didn't know him. I called him, he answered the phone and I asked, can I meet with you when you come out to uh, California? I said, sure. So I went out there, he went uh, to a, a city called Southgate and he was out there with his wife with their, and they had their carpenter as a belt on, pounding nails. And the two of us went aside and I explained this whole scenario, you know, the, the guilty, not guilty, or hung jury, not guilty. And he just hit me between the eyes. It's like getting a punch in the stomach when you don't expect it's guilt. Of course he's guilty, but they're coming back not guilty. I mean, it was just that, boom, without hesitation. And he said, you look surprised. Of course, he's, we know he's guilty, but he is not the typical, you know, murderer who's going to go out and murder other people. This is a domestic violence case. It was aimed at a particular person and another person got killed there too. But you and I know that many innocent black men have been convicted and some executed. This is payback time. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing I can say. But then, Dimitri, I had asked the media when before we started the press conference on that case i said look i will be available to you for as many questions as you have but i want you to give me the end where i have an opportunity to talk about the issue of domestic violence and they did and i spoke about it what i did because this was one of my big focuses when i became district attorney to break the cycle of violence involved in domestic violence and when we started, a woman who was at a, um, a shelter in Kansas City, Missouri, had come back to the room after she had heard the verdict. She told her kids, let's go. We're going home. If they can't get a guilty verdict in that case, they'll never get it in mine because it's my word against his. So she called out and watched me. And what I said was, look, this shocks you. It shocks me. But if you're a victim of domestic violence, this is an aberration. I want you to think not just of yourself. I want you to think of yourself, but think of your child's, your, your children. If you have a boy and a girl, for example, your girl is going to be looking at you and say, well, I guess this is the role of a mother. You know, you're beaten up all the time or you're, you know, you're abused, you know, in different ways. And the boy sees it. Well, hey, that's the macho thing to do, I guess. You've got to break that cycle of violence. So as much as you were surprised and hurt maybe even by this verdict, think of your children and help me break that cycle of violence and help them become the citizens that you want to be proud of. She called me, told me she heard that. And when she heard those words, she told her kids, we're staying, we're going to go through this.
at what point did you know that that case and that trial was going to be so big, I mean, immeasurably big, right? Change the outlook of the country, the world, perhaps, relations between people, society. At what point did you tell yourself that? Well, I was told that by my uh, press secretary, director of communications, on the day that um, the murder was discovered. She told me, I said, your life has now changed forever. And I, you know, you just kind of shrug. I said, you're all right. Well, she was right. She was right. Because there was so much notoriety in this uh, case. And it was driven by who he was. You know, Johnny Cochran. I'm not Johnny Cochran. He was, I'm thinking of Johnny Cochran. Of O.J. Simpson. You know, a very physically attractive man. A very famous man. Has a great smile. Famous football player. How could he have done this? But the media crashes in on you. What, in your view, played the biggest role in the verdict? The jury we picked, without a doubt. We were told, I was able to arrange for the first time ever to have a jury consultant who donated his services. And this guy was well-known, really good. And he warned me. He said, you're picking the wrong jury. You are picking the wrong jury. And our prosecutor who handled the case believed she had had success with the type of jury she selected. And we knew, at least we thought we had two or three people that would hang up the jury, but they were able to get rid of a couple of them and then the other one folded. And it was a jury. The evidence was there. We also knew as the smartest thing the defense ever did was not what they call wave time for a jury trial. We have a right to be brought to trial within 60 days and we're gonna do it. And the reason is because they knew we'd find more evidence. We were always looking for that shoe, that shoe print that was at the crime scene. Will we connect that with OJ somewhere? And after the verdict, they found the shoe because he was wearing them on a televised broadcast when he was working for the Buffalo Bills. What impact do you think that case had on the public's perception of the way the justice system works? I know I don't even know if I can answer that question today. I tried to answer that question immediately. Certainly, there was disappointment by many, but there was joy, absolute joy in the Black community at least the general black community. I'll give you a quick story, if I might. When I knew, I didn't realize it then, but I really not. I was at a dinner party just before the trial started. It's very small. It was at a high level, very professional people. There was a man and woman there, um, both black, the, and he was the only black man. And I got to talk to him. And he was great. He was a PhD engineer, had his own company and all. And then I wasn't talking about OJ because, you know, we're, we're going to be in trial. But they started talking about it. And then I heard him say, and I was nearby, I said, if I were on the, uh, if I were on the jury, I'd vote not guilty. And that really got my attention. So I went over to him. I mean, here's a PhD engineer who basically says, I don't care what the evidence is. 
I'd vote not guilty. And then he had earlier told me he had two young boys. They said, what would you tell your sons as to why you voted not guilty? And he dropped his head, shook his head, said, I don't know what I'd tell them, but I'd still vote not guilty. I knew then we were in trouble. I want to talk to you a bit about prosecutorial discretion. Uh, those two words are really, in my view, the most important two words in our justice system. How did your office, your assistants, go about making charging decisions, making plea offers? What factors went into those considerations? Well, you're begging the question first. First, you have to decide who is the prosecutor? Who are you hiring? What kind of background do they have? What kind of, what, criminal justice leanings do they have? I mean, does, does everyone deserve the death penalty as an extreme example? Or are you looking at someone, hey, I don't want to weigh all the evidence. I want to be sure that we have sufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this person committed the crime that we have the proof for. So that's the first thing. And that was, I believe, the most important thing I did. We had an 1,100-person office. And those are all lawyers. And so in addition to bringing in people of all colors, of, you know, race, ethnicities, you know, bring everyone in who represented Los Angeles, include, including openly gay uh, people. I wanted people who were not just so prosecution or so I never believe anything a police officer says type. I want someone who can be object, objective. So assuming that is the kind of person who's looking at, first of all, he or she goes through three weeks of training. And on the very last day before they go to their assignment, I have about three hours set aside for them personally, just myself and let's say there are 15 lawyers. And I tell them, you can ask anything you want. They said, you're all very capable, but there are going to be a times where you're going to be tested. You're going to be tested when maybe a police officer that you know, that you like, maybe even respect ask you to file a case to initiate the criminal prosecution, but yet you know the evidence is not there. How are you going to do that? Can you do that? You have to do it. You have to be able to tell the police officer no. I personally went through that experience. I was called every name in the book by that officer as a young deputy DA, but I smile and said, that's why I joined the office, because I have the authority to say no. And I was upheld by anyone to talk to. The other thing that I cautioned them about is said, look, trial lawyers are by nature competitive and you want to win. That's not always the right thing to do. What if you evidence comes out that puts a reasonable doubt in your mind as to the guilt of the uh, defendant? They said, do you go forward with it and let the jury decide? Or do you take action? You can take action. You don't have to give it to the jury. You can ask the court after you've heard all the evidence that you believe there's a reasonable doubt. And for whatever reasons, you ask the case to be dismissed. That is your authority and your responsibility to do that. Not just get another notch on your belt, so to speak. They got another guilty verdict. No, you'll be appreciated and respected by everyone in the justice system. If you have the ability to always step back, even if you really dislike 
the defense lawyer, even if he or she has attacked you personally about your ethics and whatever it is, you are different than they are. You have to take that step back, excuse me, take that step back and understand my role is different. My role is to seek justice. And that's what I'm trying to do, not just get a conviction. You know, you touched upon it. Over the past several years, even decades, uh, certainly since you've left the DA's office, DA's offices around the country, right, have suffered from this idea that, that prosecutorial misconduct, Brady violations, right, these things are commonplace in the justice system. How important is, for, is it for prosecutors to fight back against that idea? How important is it to instill in the public that trust? Well, they have the same responsibility, really, as a defense lawyer. You're talking about Brady issues. You're not supposed to hide information that is critical to the defense. It may hurt your case, but again, it goes back to what I said. What is our role? It's not just, we're not defense lawyers. We have one, maybe some defense lawyers would disagree with me, but I, I think I'm on the right side where their job is to make sure that you do not have enough evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to get my client off. You know, most are plea bargains. So yeah, you're going to try and get the best deal for them. But that's, it's the same issue that we just talked about. You know, when our responsibility is to seek justice. What changes do you think must take place for a better criminal justice system? I know it's a broad question. It's a vague question. <laughs> if you were to put your finger on it, as somebody who has experience, unlike many other people in the world, what would that be? Two things, the people that you hire, one, making sure that uh, you are hiring people who are bright, articulate, ethical, and understand that the role of a prosecutor is different than any other role in the criminal justice system. Two, make sure that you have judges who deserve to be judges. By that, you have some great judges who handle criminal trials, but you have some other judges that should never have touched a criminal trial. Um, we're not perfect, and sometimes we have a bad day. Anyone does. But when you're a judge or a prosecutor, you can't afford to really have a bad day. You do. You have to somehow uh, make up for it. Upon your departure from the DA's office, you didn't do what most prosecutors do, and that is go work at a white shoe law firm, make a lot of money. You left the law altogether. Why is that? Well, it's a little complicated story why I left um, the law. Uh, when I was 39 years old, I had a um, diagnosed with this very serious case of cancer. I was given, quote, a good chance of surviving when I asked my doctor, what does that mean? said about a 55% chance. Well, I didn't look at that as a particularly uh, great odds. Uh, but during the whole process of chemotherapy, radiation, you know, surgery, the whole thing, I was in a hospital uh, once to have an up-to-date x-ray. And I'm in an x-ray room the way all men and women are x-ray rooms. You have your smock on, you're, being, you're waiting to be called in. And this man is seated about three rows, uh, three seats from me. And he leans over the guy next to him and says, how old do you think I am? And the guy ignored him. So I said, come on over. 
So I grabbed his hand. I felt how thin his skin was, et cetera. I thought I exaggerated a little bit. I said, May 68, 69. I said, no, more. Oh, 72, 73. No, takes off his smock. This guy's in very good shape. So, whoa. All right. 76, 77. I said, no. He does 20 push-ups in front of all of us. I just said, I don't know how old you are, man. We're all smiling. We're all cracking up. Takes out his driver's license. He's 88 years old. But then he says this. He said, when I was 40, I was told I had less than a year to live. Look at me. I remember him today. I can't picture him. But I remember that incident, that serendipitous incident. And it got me to think and resolve that I was going to live in good medical, I'm sorry, physical and mental health until I'm at least 88. And when I looked at it, I said, I'm, when I, the voters told me to go fly a kite and find something else to do with my life, um, I said, I'm 59. I was in the DA's office for 32 years. You know, if I live until 88, 89, that's 30 more years. That's an old career. Let me try something new. I'll take what I learned, address it. I didn't know what it was going to be. I mean, you see some photographs behind me. Yes. I have 11 books out. I've had exhibitions around the world. I became a UNESCO ambassador on the issue of safe water because of my photography. But the advantage that I had over most photographers is my own training as a lawyer. I thought differently than they did. I thought longer term and maybe a little broader. I had speaking experience. Uh, I knew how to ask for money if I had to uh, ask for money. You know, running for office, you obviously have to ask for money. You have to be able to take all the no's that come your way. So that's what I decided to do. And then I moved on. I mean, I'm uh, the governor of California appointed me to the what's called the Little Hoover Commission. And I just came from a meeting yesterday. There are nine commissioners, I'm sorry, 13 commissioners, who once appointed nonpartisan, really great backgrounds, you cannot be removed for cause. You're there for five years. And we have oversight for all state government in terms of not, we can't make them do anything, but we can review things. Like we're reviewing things right now where I'm in charge of it is, is California really ready to handle the influx of the elderly who are coming our way and are already here? You know, what does that take? I mean, you're talking about billions of dollars potentially in terms of doing it. So it's been a great change for me. I have other things that I'm doing. You know, I, I spoke out against the death penalty, even though I supported it when I was district attorney. I campaigned uh, to get that change to uh, LWAP life without the possibility of parole. I became president of the ethics commissions, uh, various other things you can do. Even at my age, I'm 82 years old. Uh, and you know, I think I still have the energy and the ability to contribute. That's what I want to do. Mr. Garcetti, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your insight, your stories. You're very welcome. Thanks for the opportunity again, Deep Adrian.